Welcome to Flipping Real Estate Like the Pros. Here you'll learn everything you need to know to be a successful real estate entrepreneur and achieve the financial freedom you've always wanted. There's no BS, no fluff, there's zero guru talk, just real real estate flipping knowledge. Here's your host, Greg Simpson. Hey, what's up, Alliance? It's Greg here. And today I have with me Kevin Bupp. Kevin Bupp's actually here in my hometown. I didn't even know it until I started doing research on, on Kevin. Uh, so very lucky to have him in my backyard. Uh, Kevin's been a real estate investor in the multifamily uh, facet of real estate for the last 18 years. So Kevin, welcome to Flipping Real Estate Like the Pros podcast. Greg, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So Kevin, tell the Alliance a little bit about yourself today. Yeah, and I, I, absolutely, Greg. Thanks again for having me on the show. And uh, I'll just I'll clarify a little bit. I have not been in the uh, the multifamily space for eighteen. I've been a full time investor for eighteen oh, years, but I did get my start. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go back from the beginning and I'll make a little condensed version of uh, my different paths that I've taken through the real estate game over the years. So I, I got started when I was nineteen, or I got introduced to real estate when I was nineteen. I'm thirty eight today, and um, I was introduced to it just by default. I mean, by accident, really. Uh, an older individual that I'd met uh, through a girl I was dating. I was her mom's boyfriend. He was a full-time investor in the town I grew up in, in Pennsylvania, and um, just kind of took me underneath his wing. I did, you know, a little bit of everything for him. I was his mentee for a year. I mean, just you know, helping him out, going to construction sites, working with rehabs, um, you know, documents, whatever he needed. I was there. I bought my first property when I was 20, which was a pretty rundown row home in, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Renovated that, uh, it turned it into a rental, and uh, that was the very start of it. And, and from that point, moving forward started buying single family homes in a bigger scale and moved to Florida back in 2002 and then really ramped it up in a big way and uh, ended up with about 122 single family rentals and uh, just under 500 multifamily uh, doors in my portfolio prior to the 2008 crash. Um, that pretty much wiped me out and um, stepped back from real estate for a couple of years, started a few other businesses. And then uh, 2000, late 2010, early 2011, I uh, was ready to dive back in um, after brushing off my bruises and letting them heal a little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, knew I was going to get back into multifamily. I really liked the multifamily side way better than the single family. It just seemed like it was a much easier to scale and I could, I could rebuild my empire much faster by going the multifamily route. It's much more scalable. But then uh, by accident, again, I was introduced to uh, mobile home parks, which is what, what we invest in today. And so had a, a lunch meeting with an individual that was an industry veteran. He had been in the manufactured housing space or mobile home park space for 30 plus years. And uh, that hour and a half long lunch that we had, he piqued my interest numerous times with why I should consider this niche versus, um, you know, just regular multifamily apartments. And I left that meeting saying, I'm going to give it one year to focus on this niche. And uh, so here we are like five and a half years later. And, um, we own, uh, just, uh, just over a thousand, uh, lots, uh, throughout the Eastern half of the United States. We're in eight different states as far as where we own our communities. And uh, all we invest in today are mobile home parks. So we've been kind of all over the map. I've owned a little bit of everything. I have owned some other types of commercial real estate as well. Uh, but today, our sole focus and for the past you know, five or plus years has been mobile home parks. Wow, that's awesome. Tell me a little about your family life. You know, what... Uh, you're married, have kids. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you guys like to do for fun, if you do, if you are. Yeah, absolutely. I'm yeah, I'm married to a, a beautiful woman. I've been we've been married for uh, for going on eight years now. I've got two young kids, one that is about to turn four, and another one that's about to turn one. So I've got a very young family. Love it. I think I'm done with two kids, though. I don't think I'm going for the third unless it just happens by accident, <laughs> unless I get tricked into it. But uh, I love uh, love family life. 
I'm really into the life work balance. So I, I make sure that I spend you know, tons of time with my family. I don't let work get in the way of that. And, um, you know, for fun, we love, uh, we live in, I mean, we live in a beautiful area, Greg. So, I mean, Tampa Bay oh, yeah. is wonderful. We're really into, you know, water sports and boating and fishing. And, and so about, just about every weekend, if the weather is nice, you will find us out in the water on our boat and uh, we do a lot of traveling as well. So yeah, we, we just spend time outside and we live in one of the, the greatest, I personally believe it's one of the most beautiful parts of the country where we live. And uh, Tampa is by far the best city in all of Florida, if you want to compare it to the other major markets. And so we spend as much time outside as possible. Love it. I could not agree more. So let's, like, I'm going to kind of break off on that, Kevin. We have a lot of people, a lot of our listeners are getting started in this business. Um, you've been doing this for a long time now. So you talked about how you're, you're a family man. You like having fun. You like to travel. You can do all that good stuff. Let's be real. How long does it, did it take you to get to the point where you could have a good work-life balance? Because, you know, when you first start off, it's very hard to just jump in and then all of a sudden you're a millionaire or whatever, or you're making good money. And then you can, you know, kind of scale back a little bit in the, in the work balance or work part and then jump into uh, becoming the more family man. How, how long did that take you and how long, you know, any advice on that aspect? Yeah, well, I can tell you that I've learned a lot over the years. And like the first, I'm going to call it two different phases. The first phase of my investing career, I obviously wasn't married. I was young. I mean, I, all I had was time, right? And I really enjoyed what I did. And so I worked my butt off um, when I was in my early 20s, uh, all the way up until 2008. I mean, I worked my, my butt off, but I enjoyed it. So working 78 hours a week wasn't a big deal. I had a girlfriend or girlfriends, I guess, throughout the years, but <laughs> nothing, every, no, nothing ever super serious and definitely no kids in the mix. And so back then it was just work, 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 work. We got to build this big empire and it's a lot of fun doing it. Once I lost all that, obviously I had a lot of time to reflect on my life and you know, the time that necessarily not had been wasted, but how I wanted to redo it uh, the second time around. Uh, at that point I was, I literally got, I got married right after I lost everything. So it was kind of oh, a wow. weird, precarious time because my wife still had faith in me and, um, and still decided she wanted to move forward, even though literally I was losing everything. Even my personal residence was essentially, I mean, broke. I really was. I, I lost everything but about, about five rental homes. Wow. And, um, and uh, anyway, at, at that point, obviously I, had a lot of reflecting. I, I knew that moving forward, we were going to be building a family and that it wasn't fair to her to uh, really go the route that I had the first time around. And so I just, you know, what I did is I really, I read a ton of books uh, at that point in my life, just trying to figure out, you know, how do the smarter people do it? Like, mm -hmm. you know, how to work smarter uh, without working harder while also rebuilding an empire that could support my family and help us achieve our both personal and financial goals. And so, you know, I think multifamily was one of those answers. I look back at my business and what, what parts worked and what didn't. And I can tell you that the single family just took a long time to build a portfolio and it was very inefficient as far as the management was concerned, at least when comparing it to the multifamily side of things. And so I knew that um, for about, you know, for, le for, for probably half the amount of time it took me to build that, ex that previous portfolio, I could probably rebuild the same size portfolio in the multifamily side, which would allow me to achieve that life work balance, have kids and you know, still work my butt off, but have time to spend with my family and not be that father that neglects their kids and works, you know, 90 hours a week. I didn't want to be that guy. I feel like that is the, the most common, you know, regret I hear when I, when I talk to older, uh, older gentlemen uh, that are business professionals that have you know, been very successful is they didn't spend enough time. They spent too much time at work and they didn't spend enough time with their kids. They didn't go to the baseball games, the football games, hockey games or anything like that. And I didn't want to be that mm -hmm. guy. So it just really came down to working smarter uh, and not harder. And so that's, I focus on that day in, day out. 
I'm not sure I got an exact science of how I could tell someone else how to do that other than be conscious of, of what you're doing. Be conscious of every day of your life and really what's important to you. If, if work is the only thing that's important, then work your butt off. If your family is important to you, make sure that you've got that balance and, and really have a, a hard line of spending time with family and work time and try to separate the two. Um, they can be intermingled slightly, but definitely when you're in your family, focus on your family, right? Like don't be talking on the phone, having, you know, having work calls mm -hmm. when you're out at a you know, sporting event with your family. You know, that happens every once in a while, but don't make a habit of it, right? right. Um, so, I mean, that, that would, that's really what changed with me is just being conscious of the fact that I want these two separate lives. I can intermingle them, but I, I'm going to have a family. I'm going to focus on my wife. I'm going to focus on my family. That's, that's, that's priority number one. The business is priority number two. Awesome. I mean, nobody on their deathbed ever says uh, they regret not working more. That's it. You know, just the way it is. You're absolutely right. So um, because of the downturn, would you say that was the turning point in your real estate business where it all kind of came together and was like, all right, this is where I'm going to go with my niche? Um, after the crash, no, honestly, I, Greg, I put my head in the sand for like a year and a half because I was like, oh my God, everything I'd worked for forever was pretty much going away. And uh, my credit was horrible. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of judgments against me. And um, literally my last, my, my personal bank account got garnished. It was, it was a really ugly situation. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I, I didn't really have a, a revelation or a time of reflection until about a year and a half after the fact. I started a few other businesses just to, to make end meet, ends meet and uh, bring some money into our household. Again, I just got married, so it wasn't really fair. My wife was working. <laughs> I was this guy that's like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? Yeah, I was like starting over again. And um, I really had that, 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 that kind of turning point probably about a year and a half in uh, after I'd lost everything saying, I got to do something different. And um, I know it's going to be real estate. Real estate's going to get me there. But I really didn't take that big leap until about another year and a half. Um, but at that year and a half point in, 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 you know, in those three years after the crash, I look back, I really just focused on my business, the previous business and what had worked and what didn't work. And uh, at that point, I said, okay, I got it. Multifamily really is it for me. And there's nothing against single family homes. I know that's what you do, Greg. So there's nothing, you can, there's a million, different, a million and one different ways to make money in real estate. I just knew that multifamily was the way for me. And that was the sure. way that it was going to get me back to where I wanted to be. Sure. Let's touch on that actually for a second here. You know, you said I'm in the single family space. Well, guess what? I've only been in the business for about four and a half, five years now. That's the starting point. Mm -hmm. for, it's a starting point for most listeners. They start off wholesaling or bird dogging, then wholesaling. Then you can start going into rehabs. And that's where I'm at. I'm doing wholesaling, rehabbing, and owner brokerage. Long term is to start buying rentals. I mean, if you're going to plan on staying in the single family game forever, guys, I think it is the biggest mistake in your real estate investing career. If you guys were ever to come to my office and you look at my my vision board, it's right in front of my desk. I can see it every minute of every day I'm at my office. It has on there the my my like my next big goal is to own 100 unit rental mm -hmm. because you have to progress as a real estate investor. You can't stick in because you, it, it, in those other businesses, guys, you are not. In my opinion, I don't know if you agree with me, Kevin, as a wholesaler, as a rehabber, you're not an investor. You have a job. That's it. So until you get into the part where you are owning either single family or multifamily rentals, you're not really an investor. You're creating yourself a stupid job. Um, <laughs> and that's where I'm at right now. And, you know, the progression is to go into multifamily. So, you know, we all have to start somewhere. So, you know, I'm letting everybody else know that that I don't plan on being in single family forever. I might have a single family division, but guess who's not ever touching a hammer or picking up a, a shovel ever? That's me. 
you might, we might have that division, but that's part of running a business and not running a hobby. That's it. And I think you, uh, you make a good point there. And I think that, you know, there, there are ways to, there's plenty of guys out there that, and women as well. So uh, just want to make that point clear. There's no <laughs> women in this business that have very successful wholesaling companies that they've, they've automated them, right? They've automated them to where they're on autopilot for the most part. And uh, same with the fixing and flipping side of the business. Sure. But at the end of the day, that is a business. So you can build a business out of that niche, out of that side of the business, and you can do very, very well. You can also automate for major, you know, for, for most part, you can automate a business like that and do really well and allow you you'd have time to focus on other long-term passive type assets, which would be, you know, commercial real estate, multifamily, uh, things like that, like your hundred unit property. But at the end of the day, you're right. Being a wholesaler or a fixer and flipper, you're not an investor. You're not investing in real estate for sale. You got a successful real estate business, but you're not really an investor at that point in time. But the great part about those two businesses is you can make some really big lumps of cash oh, yeah. really fast. And if you're really smart with those lumps of cash and you parlay those into more passive investments that can grow with you as you grow, then th that's the way to go. Otherwise, if you don't do that and you just start over every single time, start over every single time, and all you do is keep flipping houses, mm -hmm. you've got yourself a job. You bought yourself a job. And the challenge with that is, is also we're in a really good time in the market, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a little harder to find really good deals, like highly discounted deals. It's really easy to sell them if you find them, right? Because everyone's yep. you know, paying top dollar for things. But times, times have changed, right? Like the times don't always stay the same. And so you know, there's going to be you know, valleys that you go through in this business. And so if you just got started, just know that when I got started, we were going in an up cycle as well. And everything's going up, up, up. It's great. Like you don't really, you hear some stories about like bad times, but until you actually go through a bad <laughs> time, you really don't know what I'm talking about. Having passive income, having those long-term investments, the multifamily properties, those allow you to actually survive the downtime. When, you're not, when, when your job slows down, the job of fixing and flipping or the job of wholesaling slows down a little bit, those passive income investments are the ones that help carry you through. So Absolutely. Uh, you know, invest your money wisely that you're making from wholesaling or fixing and flipping. So let's talk about... Let's I, I know you were just on on the Bigger Pockets uh, podcast this week. Mm -hmm. If you guys, we're going to touch on that a little bit, but so if you guys want to listen to that interview with Kevin on the Bigger Pockets, because he's going to he goes into a little bit more detail about the downturn and and everything with mobile home parks. So tell uh, that'll be in the show notes, guys. So that link will be in there to the Bigger Pockets one. Uh, but let's talk about that podcast that you did, to Kevin. Tell us a little bit about the topic and what was discussed on that one. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was looking forward to being on that show. It's it's been a long time coming, so it was a lot of fun spending with uh, Josh and Brandon. Mm -hmm. uh, but we we you know we talked about the downturn, kind of my business, uh, how how the downturn affected my business, because you know there's a lot of people that are listening in uh, in your group as well as uh, you know all the other real estate podcasts out there that. I call new investors those that had gotten into the business after 2008 happened, right? Like there's, that's like the new generation. And so we talked about the downturn a little bit. And then we really dove into uh, my niche, which is mobile home parks. And Brandon has been looking at buying a mobile home park uh, for probably about a year now. In fact, I was out in Denver um, this, earlier this year, sometime in the wintertime at a conference. I spoke at uh, Joe Fairless's uh, Best Ever Conference. And okay. we had an event at the Bigger Pockets headquarters. And uh, Brandon came and sought me out. He's like, hey, man, I've been waiting to meet you. I'm trying to buy a park. You know, can you help me do it? So Brandon and I have had a few good discussions uh, outside the podcast. You know, we, we talk probably every couple months. And uh, he's been like dying to buy a park. So I've been kind of like mentor him, mentoring him on the side a little bit. So we really, he was excited to, to have me on the show to talk about that niche. I mean, so that's pretty much all we talked about for I don't know, an hour, hour and 10 minutes or something like that, you know, is, is the mobile home park niche, why I like it, you know, the success that we've had in it, why I think it's better than even apart, the apartment space. 
and um, you know how you make money in it, really, how you find them, how you make money, and, and just really some of the pros and cons of the niche when you compare it to other types of real estate. So that, that was primarily what the topic of the show was about. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the downturn coming up. We don't know when, nobody does, we don't know, nobody has the crystal ball. But explain why having something like big multifamily, like big, like you said, mobile home parks or even even apartment complexes is essentially somewhat recession proof. You know, I don't know if anything's recession proof. Uh, re- recession resistance probably the better. Okay, uh, I like that. I like that. And a lot of that goes back to so there's kind of a starting point of of having something that is recession resistant. The first the first uh, point is buying it right. Okay, if you ever pay for something, even if it's a mobile home park, which I think is like one of the best asset classes to own during a downturn, if you buy it wrong, you overpay for it, then you still might be in trouble, right? So buying it right is the is first and foremost, most important. But, you know, as far as I'm going to speak to mobile home parks is, is that being recession resistant, because I think okay. they're a lot different than the, part, the apartment space. And so I, I kind of call it the trickle down effect as far as mobile home parks are concerned. And it just gives you a general idea of why during a downturn, these things survive and actually tend to thrive um, when, when people are making less money, when people lose jobs and things like that. So right now we know that there's a ton of A-class apartment buildings coming out of the ground. I mean, wherever you oh, live yeah. in the country, cool. that's all you see being built are A-class <laughs> apartment buildings. And the rents have, every part of the country, the rents have been going up incrementally. I mean, single, sometimes double digits in, in a lot of markets each and every year for the past like seven or eight years. It's crazy. A lot of apartment complexes, the A-class ones, are becoming very unaffordable. It's cheaper to own a house oh. than it is to rent, and it's it's like half the price. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> there's a, there's there's a ceiling. Okay, there's a cap. Like there's a point in time where you hit a wall where like it becomes unaffordable, and there's also a point in time in the uh, in, in the apartment space where things are overbuilt. Like in the Tampa Bay market, it's literally a race to who can build them the fastest and exactly. get it off to a big investor. At some point, someone's left holding the bag. It's like a game of hot potato. But in any event, so. <laughs> when when the market does make a shift, like let's say we go into a, you know, start going back into some type of recessionary period, uh, typically what happens is people either get pay cuts or they, you know, they get job cuts. And let's just talk about like a dual family income. So like a husband and wife, both making, you know, good money. One either gets a pay cut or loses their job and they're living in an A-class apartment building. Well, then at that point, they move down to maybe a B-plus class or B-class in general. Okay, they move to something a little less expensive, still a great area, good school district. Um, if something else should happen to that family, let's say they, one income now instead of two, and now it's, you know, their daughter graduates high school and wants to go off to college. Now they've got a, you know, college go to foot. So they can't really afford um, that on one income. So they move to a C class, right? On this hypothetical situation, sure. I mean, it could be many different scenarios that play out to, to, you know, to require people to move down in their, um, their overall housing expenses. After that, they would move to a C class apartment building, which is still, you know, older built, but still could be in a good neighborhood. But you know, def, less amenities, older built, and um, probably not as desirable of a tenant base, but still, you know, good and safe. If something else happens at that point in time, you know, if it got really bad where maybe they both lost their jobs and the husband had to go start working at Subway and the wife had to go start, you know, working at Walmart as a manager making 15 bucks an hour, right? So now their incomes are literally a fraction of what they used to be. At that point in time, they have a choice. If they can't afford where they're living, they're going to move to a D-class apartment building, which is a very unsafe place, typically in a war zone, typically a place where even if you had a gun on you, you probably wouldn't even want to go out at one o'clock in the morning and, and, and check out your apartment and see what was going on because it'd probably be a lot of illegal activities happening there. So very unsafe place. You don't want to move your family. Well, your other option that would be probably even less expensive than the D-class would be a manufactured home community. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that it's 
less safe than a C-class. In fact, most of our communities are probably the equivalent uh, as far as like the locations they're in and the markets that they're in is like a B or A-class apartment building. I mean, great school districts, very safe, clean and quiet, affordable living. But our average mobile home park that we have in our portfolio, and this is actually applies across the country, the average lot rent on a mobile home park is right around three, hovers right around $300 a month. There is no place in this country that is safe that you can live with your family in a three-bedroom home, two bathrooms, have a yard, have a sense of community, have good neighbors that have pride of ownership for $300 a month. It doesn't exist. And so if you can't afford to live in a mobile home community as you get this trickle-down effect, and I'm not saying everyone that lives there, there's a lot of people that live in a community because they choose to live in a community. They can afford to live in an apartment, but they prefer a mobile home community because of the sense of home ownership. They get a yard. They don't have neighbors above them and beside them, like where they share walls. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but if you can't afford to live in a mobile home community, Greg, if you can't afford it 300 bucks a month, guess what, bud? You're underneath a bridge or in a shelter or in a buddy's couch. Like there's, there's no other options for you at that point in time. And so Very true. we kind of fall at the bottom of the ranks, although quality wise, we're not at the bottom of the rankings, but affordability wise, we're at the very bottom. If you can't afford to live there, there's nowhere you can afford to live. And so you're go- you either got to figure it out or you got to go literally live in a homeless shelter. Mm-hmm. And I'm not making a joke about that. I mean, no, that, that's, that's, your option. that's your option at that point. In time. So that's why I believe it's really, it really is recession proof. And the quality of, of homes that we have in our parks I mean, are phenomenal. So we bring new homes in as well. So we have a home sales program. If we have, our, if we have vacant lots in our communities, we bring new homes in. I'll give you an example. In Alabama and Huntsville Market, we have a park. And uh, we, we're, we've been bringing new homes in there. Brand new three-bedroom, two-bath, single-wide homes. They've got vinyl siding, shingle roofs. I mean, they look like a mobile home, but on the inside, they look like a house, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they're nice. They got vinyl windows. A brand, you can get into a brand new single wide three bedroom, two bath home. They're about 1100 square feet in size. This, the monthly payment would include the lot rent. It would include the, the mortgage payment, PITI mortgage payment for that home over a 15 year amortization for right around $600 a month. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, where else can that even happen? And it, once you own that home, if someone wanted to come in and buy cash or if they wanted to maybe buy a used home in that community, we sell used homes too. Mm-hmm. Their lot rent's $250 a month. Yeah. There's nowhere, the median house price in Huntsville market is like $170,000. They can live okay. in that community, have the same experience, probably even more of a communal experience for a fraction of the price. So it allows those that probably never ever thought they'd be able to own a home to own a home. That's it's fantastic. That's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. And you know, I, I'm not going to go political, but we have a huge wealth gap in this country and it's only, it's over the last 34 years, it's only gotten more so it, unfortunately it's just the, the way our economy has been set up and it works. This is a, a huge benefit to those people that are in the lower middle class. Yeah. Um, we're not, we're not, this country is not building affordable housing faster no, than we have it can't. In the time. So yeah, it can't, and it's not even lucrative for developers to do that cities and local townships and municipalities counties. They don't make it lucrative for developers to want to build affordable housing. Right. And so it's just like, it's, it's one of my pet peeves, actually. <laughs> yeah, the demand for it's outpacing. And so mobile home parks are great because they fill that void perfectly. And they, they allow those that maybe have the dreams of actually being a homeowner, not just a renter their entire life, to actually have the opportunity to do that in an affordable manner. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a great thing. There's lots of other uh, positives about that niche. You know, they're not even, they're not building mobile home parks anymore. In fact, it's the, I'm going to give you a pretty cool fact that a lot of people don't know. It's the only real estate asset class that has a diminishing supply, meaning that 
there are more that get torn down or redeveloped every year than that get built. Last year, there was only eight mobile home parks built throughout the country, and there was probably hundreds of them that were shut down. So the barrier to entry, so this is why the niche is really cool. This is one of the reasons. The barrier to entry is huge. Like I buy a park in a great market, great school district with a high demand for affordable housing. I never, ever, 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 ever have to worry about someone coming in and buying the vacant land next to me or across the street and building another mobile home community and competing with me. It just does not happen. That is a awesome. beautiful thing. Apartment complex, if there's vacant land, oh, yeah. it's going up. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's a great point. So let's talk about the purchase of a mobile home park. Uh, what's like the average uh, purchase price for a mobile home park? I mean, I guess I know that is that it probably depends on the actual amount of units, but yeah. is there is like a price per unit kind of thing across the country or is it vary also in the locations? It varies. They're not very valued. They're not really valued on price per unit. They're valued okay. just like other income property. Like they typically valued on the cap rate and that's associated Perfect. with the market that they're in and the current income, you know, the current NOI that the, uh, the property produces. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, I can get, kind of give you the average of based on our business model, um, what our average purchase price is. And, and I'll tell you that we do own some smaller communities. I think the smallest one we own is 35 units in size. Uh, the largest one at this point in time is 131. Uh, but our average size hovers right around 80. In fact, uh, okay. today, today we won't even consider a park unless it's got like 60 uh, lots in it. That's kind of like our minimum threshold. And so our average price point, if you looked at what we have in contract now and what we've closed on over the past year and a half is right around a million dollars. Now, there's parks out there that sell for $30 million, right? I mean, so it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of all over the board, but our typical strike point is probably about a million. And we've got a couple of parks in contract now that are a lot higher than that. We've got one that's right around 4 million. And uh, so somewhere in that range, I'd say 4 million is probably about the highest and the million is about the lowest of where we buy. And if you took an average of what we've been paying per lot, and if you want to factor it out that way, that's not really how we... That's okay. We don't have to go that way. No, we don't need yeah, to do that. That's about, about 15 to 20,000 a lot. Okay. Well, that's that's cool. So, Kevin, how are you buying these? Are you buying these with owner financing? Are you buying them with cash? Are you? I'm assuming you're probably raising some capital as well. Tell us a little bit about how that how that the purchase actually comes to to fruition. Yeah, absolutely. So, so when I first got into this business, um, I used a lot of my own money. I, you know, the very first deal we did, I used basically any money I had left after this crash. Like I, I, okay. I used like the last hundred thousand dollars that I had in my name and put a lot into that. Put basically all that into this first deal. And uh, so the first couple of deals we did, we either used our own money or got private investors involved. Uh, some private investors that I had relationships still with from you know previous years you know, in the single family game. And um, moving forward, like today, we do have a uh, real estate fund that we raise capital through. Perfect. So uh, we've got you know limited partners that are passive investors that we've raised. Uh, I think today we're just shy of like five million dollars that we've raised. And that's how we're buying parks today. So we just we do put our own money in still. You know, we put a fraction of that five million dollars in of our own money, and um, and yeah, that's how we're buying them. So as far as like you know, you asked about owner financing and how we're financing. So we still get debt on our properties. Like we don't buy them for all cash because just the the returns are so much higher with a little bit of leverage in place. Of course. And so that's a cool. That's one of the really cool things about this business is this industry. It's not really all that old. I mean, really, the you know, back in the 30s and 40s, mobile home parks, they were really like RV parks back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were being built in, in different uh, you know, areas across the country. But the, the, the business itself, like the, most of the parks we own, really hit their heyday, meaning like most of those came out of the ground somewhere between the 60s and the 80s, with the majority being built sometime in the 70s. And so the industry, it really isn't all that old, you know, when you compare it to other types of real estate. And so... There's still a large population of original owners and developers, like mom and pops, 
that built these things way back in the day. Maybe they had a piece of farmland and they you know, converted it into a 100-space mobile home park. But now they're aging out of these assets. They're aging out of them, meaning like they're in their 80s or 90s, and they're just, they've been running it themselves. It's a common business that you'll find owners and operators that just run one park. That's been their life, you know, their life's work. They run it literally until the day that they're ready to, you know, to pass on. And so what that offers is a, an opportunity for an owner or us, a buyer to, to get owner financing. So a lot of the deals, about, about 70% of the deals that we own today, and even the ones we're in contract with, are being financed by the owner and uh, the, lots of benefits on both sides. Uh, one is that, you know, most of these guys have owned these things for so long that they have no tax base left whatsoever. I mean, like your capital oh, yeah. is going to be huge that they sell. And also they've been, they've grown really accustomed to the cash flow uh, that these, that this investment uh, offers them, but they've also been, you know, breaking their back to run it. And so owner financing allows them to get a chunk of money up front, mitigate capital gains, but also maintain a cash flow for a period of years. And so yeah. it's a beautiful thing for them to carry financing. So, you know, we always push for financing only because it's just easier to go in through the bank. Banks still don't understand mobile home parks. It's <laughs> amazing, isn't it? <laughs> some do, some don't. You know, it's always an uphill battle. Uh, it's always a struggle to, to make it happen as far as bank financing, but we, we do get it done. And so owner financing is definitely, the, that. that is always part of my, my, my negotiation strategy is trying to get them to understand the, the benefits for them and uh, seeing if we can uh, get them to go that route. So that, that's exactly how we do it. Raise capital, get financing, and, uh, and that's how we buy them. Approximately how much are you guys putting down, like giving that chunk for the owner financing? 20%? Yeah. You know, 10%? More of that. You know, we normally leverage at a normal rate. So we underwrite everything. Like we're really conservative. So everything okay. we underwrite, we underwrite assuming we're going to put 30% down. Oh, perfect. Okay. okay. Like a, normal, a normal commercial loan anyway is going to be anywhere between 25 and 30% down. I mean, if you get better, that's great. But we like to be conservative with the underwriting. And so everything we underwrite is going to be like 70% loan to value. And even when we owner finance them, you know, we'll kind of work with the owner. It really depends on the owner, you know, but I'd say on average about 25 to 30% down. There have been a few that we purchased for, you know, 10 or 15% down, but it really came down to the owner saying, hey, how motivated? I don't, I don't need it all. What's well, not even, I don't need all of it because the more cash you give me, the more tax yeah. you pay right away. So I like you guys. I trust you. I believe you're going to be able to pull through and make this thing happen. One, you know, we had one of the, the biggest park we own today, we were offering the guy, we, we paid this over a million for it. And um, we went into it prepared to pay 25% down. Like that's, that's, that's what we wrote the contract for. That's what we wrote the offer for. And he came back like near the closing period. And he said, hey guys, talked to my accountant the other day. And um, man, I just, I, I don't really need the money. I got out of, he has another business. He's like, just a hundred thousand would cover my tax nut and uh, would, <laughs> would, would keep, you know, I would just keep the income coming in. I don't want to pay Uncle Sam any more than what he really deserves. So why don't you just give me a hundred thousand down and we'll call it a day. We're like, Okay. Sweet. <laughs> that works. Twist my arm, why don't you? Yeah, yeah. So keep 150 grand in our pocket and go buy another one, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm going to pause you here for a second, Kevin, and I want the alliance to kind of think about this for a second. A lot of you guys probably have money sitting in your IRA or your 401k. You could go buy a million dollar piece of property with owner financing with $300,000 down or less. You guys all want to get into this business of real estate investing. And I have so many people that come through TB Rhea that have that kind of money sitting in their bank account. I mean, dozens of you that come there. So there's probably thousands of you out there possibly listening to this podcast. You guys have the money sitting in your account. Why in the world would you want to go out there and start learning how to wholesale or fix and flip a house when you can go buy a mobile home park for 20 to 30% down and literally retire forever? Just buy one. Just buy one. That's it. Think about that. Just 
I, I know, I know it's so sexy to want to go be flipper flop Tampa or flipper flop Orlando or flipper flop, you know, Dallas, Texas, because you want, you think that those guys on TV are just raking in the cash guys like Kevin and his investors and people that are doing what they're doing. Those are the real guys raking in the cash. So don't, don't get sucked into that sexy appeal of that side of the business when this, in my opinion, mailbox money is the sexy part. So just think about that, guys, before you start throwing money at some guru to go teach you how to wholesale or how to how to fix and flip a house. Get hooked up with a mentor that's doing this, and then you go put your money to work with them even. So off my soapbox there. I'm going <laughs> to elaborate on that a little bit. Please. Well, Greg, if, if you would, you know, it really does take one deal to change your life. And I'm going to give you guys an example. So we, we currently own 11 communities. And um, I'm going to the, the example I'm going to give you is not an anomaly because I could give you at least five of the parks that we own that would fit you know, what you just mentioned there, Greg, about it. If you've got a couple hundred thousand in an IRA, you know, you can definitely go buy one park that would change your life. And I'm going to give you one of the parks that we own. And again, this is just one of the examples. I give you multiple others, but we own a park in Richmond, Virginia. It's a, it's a smaller park. It's a 52 space park. We purchased it from not the original owner, but he owned it for about 38 years, the guy that owned it. And uh, we paid $650,000 for it. Uh, he owner financed it. Uh, we put put uh, 25% down. So I think it was like $162,500. I think that was the down payment. And uh, the park did have some operational challenges. It was in great condition. The guy maintained it while well. he was just really bad about running the business. So it was in good condition. It was mostly occupied. It had some vacancies in there. Um, but uh, he just was really bad about managing expenses, the operational expenses. So he had a lot of more people on payroll than what he needed and things like that. And so we knew we could fix those problems very quickly. So his, his profit and loss statement looked horrible. It looked like we were overpaying for this thing grossly, but we knew we could fix the problems very quickly. In fact, it only took us about three months before this thing was just thrown off cash left and right. So that park there, still on it today, um, $162,000 down. The very first year, so we bought it. We bought that one in uh, the end of 2015. When we bought it, his NOI for that year, uh, leading up to the end of the year, we bought it in like November, uh, was only about $28,000. His gross Whoa. income was like two forty, dollars and his, his NOI was like 28000 So his expenses were just I mean, out of the control. Yeah, um, no kidding. 2016 was the very first full calendar year that we owned that property. Our gross income for 2016, I believe, was about $260,000, and our NOI was $168,000. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and our debt service on that property, our, again, we put normal amount down, our debt service on that property is right around 40, I believe, don't, don't, I'm not, I'm, these aren't exact numbers, about $45,000 a year. That property, after all the expenses, after paying an on-site manager, we have an on-site manager that lives there, we have an on-site handyman that handles everything. Mm -hmm. After debt service, after all the expenses, taxes, insurance, repairs, maintenance, everything, that, that park alone puts over $100,000 of net cash flow in our pockets. Each Holy week. crap. That is a life-changing deal for anyone. So <laughs> we, we really are making our money back. We've already made our money back on that one. We made our for money sure. back on that one in a year and a half. That's insane. And uh, now, you know, actually we're, we're in, a, in, a, in the middle of a refinance day. That property uh, it, it recently appraised for just under 1.5 million. It's like $1.48 million. Wow. So we you know, added a ton of value to it. We're going to get some cash out, not over leverage it. We're just going to get a little bit of cash out and mm -hmm. uh, just continue cash flowing with it. And the fact, that's not, they're not even really all that attractive of um, financing terms. I think the interest rate we got was like, it was like six and a half percent or something like that. I mean, he, he kind of made the terms a little bit, but it didn't really make a difference. It was such a it small doesn't. amount. 
loan amounts like $460,000 or so, you know? And so I was like, okay, whatever, we'll pay you six and a half percent. And I think that the amortization term is only 20 years. Mm. And um, that thing is a life-changing deal. We've got multiple others like that. So it, it only takes one. And I'm not saying you could just go find that on LoopNet or Mobile Home Park Store. That one, no. we, we, yeah. we sought out ourselves. We sent letters and cold called the owner. And, you know, that's, that's what we do. We do a lot of off-market stuff like mm. that. And uh, but that one, one deal like that would, is life-changing for just about anyone. I mean, that's a six-figure income. And it, that thing only takes us, nothing's ever passed, right? So we still have to manage the manager. We have to keep of course. things. Realistically, that, that one probably takes us, um, let me think here, probably about four hours a week to actually oversee it, to make sure things are going you know, as they should. About four mm-hmm. hours a week, so 16 hours a month, and uh, that's it. Like that, that's not a bad payday. Team there locally, the manager on site, they're they're, they're awesome. They do mm-hmm. they, they were they were working there when we bought it, and uh, they do a great job, and they're just very loyal, and uh, they make things happen for us. So fantastic. So let's go back and talk about that deal a bit. Obviously, that guy was mismanaging the crap out of his property. So let's talk about the management side because that's obviously the one thing that we haven't touched on at all is is having management and having it done correctly. What, what are some tips and tricks you could, could give our uh, listeners about the management side of this business? You know, I, th- I think the important thing about any um, uh, area of real estate you dive into, like if you're just getting started and you plan to buy real estate to, um, you know, to have his rental property, like long-term cash flow, I, I think everybody, I know you can outsource it to a third party and you can kind of be all, all, you know, hands off with it, but I still think everyone needs to learn that part of the business. I still think you need to self-manage for a, a period of time so that you can understand tenant landlord laws, you can understand you know, interaction with tenants and residents, you know, challenges that, that come up and how to overcome them. That way, when you do hire a management company or you do like with us, we don't have a management company, but we are our own management company. We have on-site managers that are employees mm-hmm. of ours that live in these communities so that you know how to manage them and know how to identify when they're doing a good job or a bad job, like when things are struggling, when you need to step in. So I don't know if that really answers your question or not, as far as like how to manage these properties. But I mean, that's, you got to learn how to do it yourself first. And there's lots of, you can go through, um, I forget what it's called. There's an organization out there, a national organization that, you know, it's a property management related organization. You can mm-hmm. probably take local classes and things like that, or just go be a mentor for someone that owns rental property or go get your real estate license go work for a property management company, sure. but learn that side of the business. That, that's going to help effectively help you become a better owner operator, especially if you're going to own big properties like an apartment building or a mobile home park. Agreed. And I'm going to add one thing to that too. It will also help you appreciate all that goes into managing a property. So when I hear people complain and bitch and moan all the time about, oh, my property manager's taking 10% or 12%, depending on the, the scale. And it's like, you have no idea what those guys are doing uh, for that measly 10%. So I agree with you that they need to learn all that goes in so they can they can get the headaches. They can understand that that 10% is worth every bit of that peace of mind that they're paying. Absolutely. You know, it's it's fun owning real estate. It is not fun managing real no, estate. No, sir. Not. And so, you know, don't get caught. Like, you can create a jail for, jail for yourself. I mean, like, you, you really can. If I would have bought this park and I had said, hey, you know what? I'm going to fire this on-site manager. I'm just going to manage this thing myself. Now, I wouldn't do it because it's really far away, so that wouldn't even be possible. But if I did buy it, let's say it was in Tampa, I'm going to manage this thing myself. I can't tell you how miserable, I, miserable I'd be today. Like, it's just not fun. That's not a fun part of the business. It takes all the sexiness, takes all the excitement, for me at least. Maybe some people would like it. For me, it just takes all the excitement out of it, right? And it, and it limits your time to be thinking about that next investment. So freeing up my time, you know, having on-site managers there frees up my time to go buy a second park, a third park, a fourth park. So 
it's this, uh, it's a way to kind of settle on semi-autopilot and let you keep on running. Or maybe you don't want to buy the second park. Maybe you want to train these managers, get them to do their job correctly, and then go you know, travel with your wife or your family or just, I don't know, sleep in every day. If whatever you want to do, whatever, <laughs> whatever's your, your hobby and you want to spend more time doing, you get to do that. You don't want to be there in the trenches. It's, it's worth just paying someone else to do it and teaching them how to do it right. Cool. All right. So we've talked about all this. Let's kind of get into some of the fun questions I like to ask. So Kevin, tell us a little bit about the craziest deal you've ever had to go through. Craziest deal I've ever had to go through. Hmm. Like in a good way or a bad way? <laughs> uh, uh, either way. Either way. Okay. Which... okay. Got it. Yeah. You caught me off guard with that one. Crazy. All right, I usually do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want this to be exciting and I'm trying to think of one of the, I mean, I feel like we go through all kinds of crazy deals, at least in the mobile home park space. Yeah, like uh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give you a good one. It's actually the first park we bought. I'll give you okay. a good story. So we, it's a bank, bank on property in Atlanta. Uh, it's a 34 space mobile home park. When we bought it, it had been uh, in receivership, court appointed management company, which typically court appointed management companies do nothing. Like they don't manage at all because they just get paid by the courts and they literally don't mm-hmm. do a thing. And uh, so anyway, this, this mobile home park had been sitting there. I had 29 homes in it. I had been sitting there neglected for like three years and uh, most units had been abandoned they had been uh, vandalized ac units stolen all the windows broken water leaks because they didn't turn the water off it was a mess it was across the street from the chief of police and the uh, the, the mayor's office so they, the mayor had to drive by this thing every day on his way to work and it was a, a drain on the local resources it was an eyesore and he hated it with a passion i didn't know this uh, but he hated it with a passion so we looked at it. We realized that there was some good opportunity there. That was a huge project. We had a basically all 29 trailers came with the, um, the purchase. Every single one needed a full top to bottom rehab. And uh, so we bought this thing. There was four squatters living in that park. When we bought it, we kicked them out and we started like ground zero, like no cash flow, just a big mess on our hands that we had to clean up. Well, I'm going to step back uh, literally about a month before we bought it because before we ever buy any kind of community, especially if it's a turnaround community that we know is a drain on local resources. We always try to you know, get the local government to you know, be on our side. Like We want sure. to let them know that, hey, we're going to do positive things here. We know, without you even saying, we know this is a drain on you guys. And we know you hate it. You have to, right? Who wouldn't hate it? It's like drug, sex, rock and roll. Everything bad you can think of <laughs> happens in this community. And you guys dislike it because it gives you a bad reputation. It gives this little town a bad reputation. So we got a meeting set up with the mayor. Uh, the chief of police, nice uh, code enforcement, and a few other representatives there. I think there's like 11 people in this meeting. So my partner and I went in, and we went in there all like positive, happy because we know we can do the job. We know we can get this place turned around. Like for us, we're like, eh, it's going to be a little bit of a headache for a while, but we'll, we're going to make some money here, and we're going to turn this place around. We went in there to meet with this guy. Number one, I was not expecting. I didn't do any research in the mayor before we went to meet him. We walked in, and he is about a six foot four guy, like 350 pounds, with a the gi- ginormous handlebar mustache and a bald head. <laughs> I was like, oh gosh, okay. It just looked scary. It looked very intimidating. Sat down. He had like a stuffed fox on his wall. It was the craziest thing ever. Sat down with him and, and just went ahead and started pitching him on who we were, what our capabilities were, what we've done in the past, and what we intended to do with this community. And he sat there quiet for me. He looked at us. He said, guys, don't waste your time. Don't waste your money. I've been trying to shut this park down for the last two years. If you buy it, I'm going to work even harder to shut it down, and you're going to lose all your investment that you worked so hard Whoa. for. I said, okay, well, that's not what I was expecting. <laughs> I was expecting you guys to be happy that someone's about to come in and turn this place around. So what we found out is that in his eyes, mobile home parks were the problem. Mm. That's, he just thought like mobile home parks in general, no matter who managed them, no matter who ran them, 
they were going to be a problem and he wanted it gone with a passion. There's nothing we could do or say to make him think any differently. We left that meeting. He didn't shake our hand when we left. He basically was already like, okay, I'm going to kick these guys ass. That's, that's what's going to happen. They're going to keep moving forward. So we left there. We looked at each other. My partner and I, his name was Al. I said, Al, I think we should still do it. <laughs> I think we should still go forward. And we were putting up about 300 grand of our own money to, to make this happen. So it was a big, and that was all the money I had. Like I literally had $120,000 that was left over from the crash. This is our first deal that we bought. Mm -hmm. So I was risking everything I had, Al, kind of the same situation to do this deal. And um, we, uh, we went ahead and started rehabbing. Just we did our best and uh, we complied with like code enforcement. You know, we at least built a good relationship with them. And uh, about 11 months in, we, it took us about nine months to get what we considered to be like 80% stabilized. Uh, we had 80% of the units renovated. Most of them were rented. Space looked completely different. We did a facelift, changed the name, changed signage, put landscapes awesome. in. Completely different community. About 11 months in, I get a call. I, I, I didn't I mean, have the number saved, but it ended up being the mayor. His name was Bobby Cartwright. That was the mayor. He's still the mayor there. Now he called me and said, Mr. Buck, this is Mr. Cartwright. Mayor Cartwright, I think is what he refers to. <laughs> I, was, I said, oh, hey, Bobby. You know, like I just called by his first name because that's what all his, his, uh, his workers call him. Anyway, I said, hey, Bobby, how's it going? But I haven't talked to you in a long time. Is this, uh, you calling me to to yell at me about something, you know, just trying to make light of the situation. He said, actually, I want to apologize. Oh, wow. I want to nice. apologize by saying that I now know, I, I'm, I'm saying I'm wrong, first off. I was wrong, and I want to tell you that now I know that mobile home parks were not the problem. It was those that managed them, and you guys have done a phenomenal job. Whether you know it or not, one of our employees here at the courthouse even lives in your community. Oh, wow. You guys have done a great job. Our police force love you to death because they don't have to drive through there three times a day. And thank you for bringing this place back. It's now it's a positive part of our community and we're happy to have you. I'm like, wow, okay. So that's fantastic. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was basically a story of like, wow, this guy's gonna shut us down. He's gonna, you know, kill us in our sleep, you know, because of this, we bought this community to I'm sorry, I was wrong. And this is a big, intimidating dude. And uh, he, he basically said, you guys know what you're doing. And um, thank you. you know, thank you for, for being a part of our community. So it was a, it was a roller coaster of a ride because at any day we thought that he was going to come in and you know, try to maybe stop us from doing the renovations, you know, put stop orders on you know, us getting permits, mm -hmm. things like that. And it never really happened. He just kind of sat back and watched. And um, it all turned out very, very positive. So, Man, I wish more mayors and more politicians were like that where they actually let let people fix it and do it, do it right without the government stepping in and trying to put their two cents in sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the funny thing is that we went to buy another park and we had the same challenge with the local, um, the local town, the mayor, they, they hated mobile home parks. They thought mobile home parks were the problem. Well, Mr. Bobby Cartwright actually wrote us a recommendation. Oh, letter awesome. And got them on board with what our plan was. And he wrote a very thorough recommendation letter, same storyline as I just mentioned to you about parks not being the problem. These guys know, know what they're doing, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that literally helped us, you know, win this town over, you know, when we bought this other community that was also neglected. So it was pretty cool. We had a pretty cool experience. That's, that's a great story. I like that oh, a it's lot. It's rewarding knowing we've made a huge change in this community, like a, no doubt. a positive change in this community. That's great. I don't know if that was crazy story, but that was, no, that's, that's just a good story. I, I don't know if it would be crazy or not, but that's a, that's a, I, I, you should have seen my face. Actually, I wish we were doing a video podcast right now because my face when he said when when he told you that when you met with him, I my my jaw dropped. Like, okay, all right. <laughs> I think that's the importance of anyone that's listening. That why you have to master whatever craft you. So I, I, at that point, I was not a master of mobile home parks, but what I was very confident with, I had done hundreds of rehabs, 
I've run crews before, you know, multi, I've project managed multiple crews on multiple rehabs. I was very comfortable with our ability to oversee that project, even mm -hmm. from eight hours away. You know, we, we, we literally traveled up there once a week for two days every week. You know, I mean, wow. it was a, for, for like the first seven or eight months. I was very confident in our ability to take it down. I knew I could prove that guy wrong. And I think that the importance is like, you got to focus on one thing. Like us, it's mobile home parks. Focus on one thing and become an expert at it. That way, when you go into situations like that, there's always going to be problems you're going to run into being a real estate investor. And I think we, those that make the most money in this business, whatever niche you're in, doesn't matter what niche you're in, those that make the most money in this business are those that can become expert problem solvers. Like right there yep. was a major problem. He was basically saying, I'm going to make you guys lose all of your investment you're about to put in here. Don't waste your money. That's a big problem. We knew that we could overcome it. You know, we knew that we could do it. We knew we were going to do what we said we were going to do. and We were going to prove him wrong. And um, we also knew the law was on our side. Like he can't just come in and shut us down. Technically. He can sure. make our life a living hell, but also mm -hmm. we, we could hire an attorney and we could fight it. You know, so we were ready to go to battle and we felt confident enough in our ability to, um, to come out on the positive side. So fantastic. So Kevin, what's one thing you know now that you wish you knew when you first started in this business, when you were in your early twenties? Multi-family real estate, you know, okay. I, 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 seriously, I mean, I just, uh, it, 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 I, I should say commercial real estate in general, because it doesn't necessarily have to be apartment buildings or, or mobile home parks. Commercial real estate in general is just a, it's a much more scalable uh, business. If you really want to build an empire and you want to build something that could, you know, could leave a legacy for your children and your family, something that truly can be, for the most part, passive. I mean, commercial real estate can get you there very fast. And, um, it's a much more scalable model than I think, then again, nothing against single family homes because I'm not harping on it at all. There's everyone can make money in any different niche they choose. But for where I want to be and for where I wanted to be back when I got a start, um, I feel like it, it would have been a much more efficient path with commercial real estate or, you know, multifamily, whatever it might have been on a bigger scale. Like if someone had told me, hey, learn this sooner than later, learn how to invest in larger properties sooner or later and just get out of your comfort zone with doing single family homes. I would have done that. I would have, that's what I would tell myself if I go back in time. Perfect. Okay. So we're going to wrap up the podcast here in just a few, few minutes. Um, I want to track back to when you did your intro and you said you lost everything through the crash and you said you took a lot of time to reflect and you said you read a lot of books. What were some of those favorite or some of your favorite books from that time? From that time, you know, um, or in general, you can give us some great, I mean, I'm a book guy. So give us some of your favorite books that you, that you like. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a couple. I'm looking at my bookshelf now because I, I don't necessarily <laughs> have like one that's, I mean, there's been a ton that have had a major impact in my life and have helped shape, you know, who I am today. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, honestly, I don't read as much. Like the last like, year and a half, I've had a hard time finding the time to read, which drives me crazy. And yeah. I don't have large commutes anymore. I used to listen to audiobooks all the time right. when I drove <laughs> a lot and I don't drive a lot now. But one that's, um, one that's, uh, that, that I think is an awesome book, and I don't know when it was written, probably a couple of years ago, it's called Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. It's written by Vern. Oh. Uh, I think his last name's Harish or Harnish, something like that. So Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, that's a great business book, but can okay. be generally applied to any type of business you're in, real estate or um, any other type of entrepreneurial venture. Another one that is also not real estate related, but still plays into um, scaling a business and growing a business with the idea that maybe one day you'll sell that business is um, The Making of a Blockbuster. It's essentially the story of, and I always forget, to, I always mess up this guy's last name. It's like Wayne Haiguza or something like that. Haizenga? Heizinga, uh, yeah, Heizinga. He's still on the Marlins. That's it, yeah. So he uh, he's the one that also started Blockbuster, and essentially yep. it's the story of him 
back then that niche, you know, the, the movie rental niche was this mom and pop businesses. And he essentially did a roll up strategy, started buying mom and pop movie rental businesses all across the country, changing the name Blockbuster. And then, you know, was essentially the first IPO in that space. And, it, and he did the same thing with waste management as well, which you know, mm-hmm. back in the day, you know, waste, what we know is waste management, which is the largest company in the world that does um, trash pickup was just mom and pop operations with garbage trucks. And yep. uh, he did a big, ma- big massive roll up strategy. And it's just, a, it's an interesting story to, it's, it really teaches you how to think about the future. Like, don't just think about like that one next deal. Think about like where you really want to be. Maybe you don't want to be that guy. Maybe you don't want to do a roll up and sell out like, you know, 20 years down the road, but it just, uh, it helps you really envision what the future looks like and think like 10 steps ahead, not just like one or two steps ahead. Yeah. That's great. All right, Kevin. So before I let you go, tell us how we can get in contact with you, uh, your website, uh, contact information, uh, and any parting shots you'd like to give us. Yeah. You know, it's uh, a couple different ways you can contact me. My main website, which is kevinbuck.com. You can also listen to all my, I do two weekly real estate podcasts. One is commercial real estate investing related. I've been doing it for like almost four years now. Um, You can go on there and listen to all the past shows. You can find me on iTunes as well, but kevinbuck.com, you can contact me and and uh, our main company website, if you want to learn a little bit more about what we do as far as the mobile home park niche, like what our company does, how we invest in mobile home parks, what markets, sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. That's our, our investment arm. That, that, that's the investment side of our business. So sunrisecapitalinvestors.com or kevinbuff.com. Either one of those, you can track me down. And if you want to shoot me an email directly, kevin at kevinbuff.com. So I'm not, I'm not too hard to find. Awesome. Uh, any parting shots? Yeah, you know, I, you spoke a little bit to Greg uh, that there's a good number of those that listen into your show that are just getting started that are new. And um, I know this is so simple and so elementary, but you just got to get started somewhere, right? And there's, a, again, I, I keep saying it, there's a million and one different ways to make money in real estate. Pick one and, and choose a time frame. Give yourself at least a year minimum to focus on that one thing. Don't chase all the other shiny objects. You go to the local you know, RIA groups and things like that and you hear all these different guys of, they make money in lease options, they make money wholesaling, they make money... Um, you know, fixing and flipping, they make money in mobile home parks, like all these different ways, pick one that you think is going to be a good fit for your personality and just stick with it and just tune out everything else, at least for a year and do your part, put the effort in, take action. It's going to be challenging, going to be frustrating. You're going to hit many points in time where you're like, ah, this is not going to work, but keep pushing through it and just focus. Focus is the biggest part. And um, I think that is the, the challenge that those that I've been thinking about real estate for four years. They've been thinking and they've been mm-hmm. you know, all over the board. That, that's why they haven't done anything yet. They've been, they go to the groups, you know, like, you know, the guys, like there's, oh, yeah. they go to these groups, they, they, they show up every week and they've been showing up for three years and they still haven't done a deal. It's like, pick something, man. It's like, it's, it's not changing. Pick something and focus <laughs> on it and do it. Stop talking to everyone else about what they're doing and, and think about getting into that niche. Like just pick the one niche and focus on it. So that would be my, my parting shot there. Awesome. Kevin, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule and coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. And uh, I will be hitting you up to take you out to breakfast or lunch or something. I want to pick your brain some more after this. Yeah, love that, Greg. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks, man. Awesome. You've just listened to another Flipping Real Estate Like the Pros podcast. You're another step closer to fulfilling your dreams as a successful real estate entrepreneur. We'd like to thank you for putting your trust in us to be your guide into this exciting venture called real estate investing. For more information, visit our website at www.flippingrealestatelikethepros.com. Catch you on the flip side, Alliance.